Welcome to Blind Shovel, an arts and music podcast. Today I had the pleasure of speaking with designer and fabricator Sam King. Enjoy. too much wow good to hear your beautiful voice it's been a while same well uh, what's up what you've been working on um yeah this has been a big year for us i feel like uh it's our third year at as a company and uh i think we finally reached the point where we don't have to worry so much about keeping the lights on and we're kind of now able to really focus in on making new design work and like really kind of furthering our like creative uh, endeavors. Um, and also just, yeah, moving moving away from being a fabrication shop for other companies and, and really more towards just promoting our own stuff. And this is KLN Studio. You got it, yep. So you started off fabricating for other people, like aiding other people in their projects? <clears throat> yeah, so our company started with the the three of us we've been studio mates for years um i've been i've been sharing space with the two of them for at least nine years now i think um and you know initially it was for us to pursue our own private art practices and for me it was always kind of revolving around functional art and furniture um but yeah we did a variety of things and uh we would often like team up on larger projects where we would get a commission to do an installation for somebody or say another furniture company or design store had already designed things they needed someone to fabricate them. Um, That was kind of how we would keep things moving while we were also working on our own kind of independent projects. Um, And then starting KLN, we made a decision to kind of consolidate and collapse our individual design work into one more cohesive portfolio and start Mm -hmm. promoting that under KLN. And then at the same time, offer services for other artists and designers in the tri-state area um, to get like CNC cutting, design engineering, fabrication, things like that. and you know that's it's been really great we still do a good amount of that um but yeah i feel like this year we've kind of made a a bit of a turn and and focused a lot more on uh just further expanding our own uh furniture collection and and really thinking about kind of us as as a design company rather than a fabrication shop right and you went to school for industrial design is that correct no, I actually didn't. I uh, I was a double major in history and studio art. Um, what the hell is studio so, art? Well, that's what they called it at Pitzer. But yeah, basically, um, you know, the like classic definition is just like drawing, painting, sculpture, like 
visual arts that aren't performed, I guess. Okay. Um, so yeah. And you know, at, just as broad and vague as that sounds, it's basically like what the education was. So mm -hmm. really for me, I, I kind of found my love for all of this um, in the wood shop there. Originally, um, there was a few classes that were like mixed media, functional art um, courses where we would have to kind of imagine and build like collaboratively shared living spaces to accommodate different things. And then also do like, kind of yeah like functional art and furniture uh that we would then have to like live with and kind of write about our experience like living and interacting with the objects that we make that's um, cool yeah yeah it was a cool it was a cool program um but that got me really excited about furniture um i always loved making things and um sculpture was always really interesting to me and working in like 3d space was always interesting to me, but I, and you know, a lot of it probably has to do with just uh, imposter syndrome, you know, but just feeling like I would have to justify every move I made in a sculpture with some larger theoretical concept that had to be coherent and uh, have me like able to argue it and justify my thought process and the way I entered design and, and furniture was like allowing me to really focus and fixate on like form and, and color and texture and like feel and not, not feel the burden to justify it. Um, Rationally. So yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, apart from the fact that it served a purpose, like, um, yeah, I always thought that was interesting. Uh, which after which that, aspect? What? The fact that you needed to... What you needed to academically justify certain moves? I mean, I definitely understand what you're saying. And I suppose it could yield good results for certain people's process, but I do think it's a hindrance for most people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, it also... I, I would agree with that. And, you know, it has a, so much to do with just your own creative process and like way of making. Um, and for me, I've, I've always done it pretty like tactily. Like I, I mm. like to be evolving and developing ideas like in the studio, making physical maquettes and, and pushing and pulling things that could also happen in like 3d space on a computer. But, but yeah, I think uh, for me, it's kind of figuring out what I can do with the materials themselves um, in real space has always been kind of the jumping off point for me. Um, but anyways, yeah, going back to this, this course in college, that was kind of where I started. And then I got really excited about the idea of furniture as a thing that I could pour my creative energy into, but then also be making things that people wouldn't just look at, they would live with and, and experience on a like more intimate kind of day-to-day -day yeah. way. Um, and I found a furniture maker in LA that I ended up actually doing a pretty like old school apprenticeship uh, with. I would work for him for a couple days of a week while I was finishing up my degree. And, uh, and yeah, it was like a really special experience that 
I feel really lucky to have had. Um, he was a very small, it was a very small operation. Him and his wife ran everything. Uh, they had a small showroom in West Hollywood and then he made everything with me once I started working there, but prior just by himself, um, in his like studio, uh, that he set up in his garage behind his house. Um, wow. so yeah, I would just show up at his place and we would work all day. We would have lunch with, you know, his family and his like two year old daughter and, and me ended up becoming pretty close friends. Yeah. It was just like a really special way to, uh, learn, how did, how did that, that uh, come about exactly that's a very the reason i ask is i think a lot of people would benefit from such an arrangement but it isn't clear exactly how that would occur for most people yeah i mean i i feel really lucky apart apart from the fact that i just trolled the internet for all la furniture makers that were doing work i thought was cool mm -hmm. uh i just kind of emailed a bunch of people cold and, and started explaining what I was interested in. I was fortunate enough to be in a position where, you know, I was ahead in my credits for school. I could go part-time and still finish on time. And it took the financial burden off of me having to, you know, require like a, a decent wage for the first few months that I worked for him. I would say within like three months, I was, at a level where I was competent enough that it wasn't me that getting an education as much as me, you know, helping him actually make money. Um, so he started paying me granted, not a lot, um, but yeah, I think, I think that honestly is a, yeah, it's, it's a system that like doesn't really exist anymore o outside of like building trades and, and union structures and stuff like that. I think as a like person trying to do a more creative thing, you're either in like a big organization doing unpaid internships that, you know, don't often amount to much and you're not getting tangible skills from doing those because you're, you know, running to get people coffee and stuff and they're not actually trusting you or teaching you to do the things that they are doing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I'm still here. I just not talking. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, like, in respect to the CNC, when did you get introduced to that? Um, were you working with a CNC when you were apprenticing with with him, or no? No. So he was pretty old school. Like he he learned all this kind of fine furniture, finished carpentry, woodworking stuff from his uncle, um, and. He, he actually was like out in LA originally trying to make it as an actor and musician and was working at a hardware store and had all of this kind of knowledge just from his like upbringing. He was from this like small town in Louisiana. And, uh, and yeah, he basically, he was just doing handyman stuff for uh, like wealthy people in the Hollywood Hills. And they would ask him if he was able to do you know, like re make a new door for them or something. And the request started getting more complex. And he started realizing that a lot of his like creative energy that was being kind of wasted going to these like cold call interviews or whatever he could, or auditions, I mean, uh, he could 
uh, put into woodworking. Um, so hmm. yeah, that was, that was kind of how he started. He like grew from word of mouth from being the handyman for this fancy hardware store in the, in Hollywood. So you went to college and then you effectively interned or were an apprentice for this guy. Mm-hmm. And then how do we get to where you are now? So I met James and Toby, my two business partners, working for um, a design build architecture studio. They do a, a lot of different things, um, but C2 Studio in C2. Brooklyn. Yeah, it's S-I-T-U. Um, and yeah, we were all hired there. We, we worked together mm, maybe for all of us there at once, maybe for like nine months or something, but yeah, we were fast friends and it was kind of where we started our kind of building our like social network in New York. We were all transplants. So we moved here when we were like 23, 24 and, uh, and yeah, kind of gravitated towards one another and all of us were pretty hungry to keep, kind of making our own things independently outside of what we did for a living for work. And uh, I was looking for studio space and really quickly realizing that I couldn't afford anything. And then, uh, yeah, I basically talked to the two of them to see if they were interested in going in on this little share uh, behind another small architecture studio's shop they would give us access to their wood studio and a few other things and uh yeah that's kind of how it all started um but yeah that that was also where all three of us were introduced to digital fabrication in more of like a hands-on technical sense we we learned what is digital fabrication is it like cnc work yeah exactly so basically it's it's designing in in 3d space uh on a computer software and then translating that through like CNC, through laser cutters, 3D printers, whatever. Basically just having like the start be digital. Right. And a design build for people who don't know, how would you describe that? I mean, the name says it all, but when I first heard the term, I was not entirely sure what it meant specifically. Yeah. So like traditional architecture, uh, you know, it's it's exclusively a design service um, where you're producing drawings, you're getting building permits, you're coordinating things, and you're always working in tandem with a general contractor or another company that's actually doing the physical building of the thing. Yeah. Um, in recent decades, it's it's mostly for smaller scale, more boutique uh, firms um, and projects as well. Uh, having an all-in-one design and build operation streamlines things, allows for more kind of technically complex builds and installations because the same company that's engineering and thinking through the design work is also responsible for seeing its final execution. So there's something like beneficial there. Um, And for me too, as a, you know, just starting to think as a designer, I thought it was really, really helpful to be in an environment where 
the people designing the things were making the things, or at least were right upstairs from the people making the things. Having that, like, uh, you know, a lot of architects, if, if you speak to them and they haven't had that experience, it's a really enviable way to learn um, how to improve, how to like think through different problems. Um, so yeah, uh, that's, that's the design build. And if you were to talk about what a fabrication company does, I know this might seem like it's semantics, but I'm even asking from a place of genuine curiosity when trying to define um, what I'm doing. But would you say there's a difference between design build and a fabrication company? And what is KLN uh, is in the most concise way of speaking about it? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I feel like when you're thinking about design for me, design build uh, applies more to like the architecture world, whereas okay. like fabrication spans architecture design. It really just means people making the thing. Um, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. you know, uh, a fabrication company that designs and then builds their own thing is a design build company. Um, I think for for our purposes, because um, we do a bit of all of that where someone, you know, someone will reach out and say, I have this nook in my house and I want to design something that's got like seating and shelving for books and a little desk to work in. And then we can take it from there and produce the say the whole design and then build and install it. We can also be approached by architects or interior designers or other furniture companies who would hire us to just produce the physical thing that they had already pretty fully um, designed themselves. Right. And that I would consider to be just fabrication. You know, that's, that's us getting hired by someone who has designed a thing that wants us to actually produce it. And then, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then the thing that we're trying to do more and more um, which we already do a good amount of is is just designing our own lines and collections of furniture and then selling and promoting them. What would you say the what brings the three of you together? Is there an aesthetic that makes sense collectively? Yeah, it's it's actually an interesting thing and I don't know I can't put my finger on when it happened and what came first, but we've spent so much time together also just working alongside each other for so many years, I feel like unconsciously our own kind of design aesthetics have found ways of interacting with each other where you can tell like which one of us, you know, if you knew us and knew our like past work, you could see which person would be like primarily responsible for which product. But I feel like they've all found their kind of compliments to each other in a way that's, I don't know. It's kind of it's kind of exciting because I, I feel like a few years ago when we were talking about doing this uh, collaboratively, that wasn't really there. Hmm. And I feel like it, it did kind of happen organically. Interesting. Yeah. And do you mostly see advantages to that union? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Honestly, like all of this stuff is really overwhelming and scary and like especially coming from 
you know, nothing even close to like a business background or like a marketing sure, background. Sure. Like, you know, I, I had to learn about what New York state tax laws were and like labor laws and all these things that like, you don't really consider when you're trying to start out doing something like this, that end up consuming like your whole life yep. when you first start. I think being able to like lean on each other and like d divvy up the burden of, of that kind of stuff was huge for, for us. Um, and also being able, like in the design process, it's really important being able to bounce ideas off of each other and, you know, have like design charrettes and like the ability to critique each other and improve upon each other's stuff. And then, take it and, you know, evolve it into something totally different. I think that's like really where the, my favorite things that we've made have come from. Do all three of you have similar backgrounds? Yes and no. Um, I would say, yeah, like Toby is more from an architecture background. He went to Stanford uh, undergrad for architecture and also studied art. James uh, went to RISD and was really focused on like sculpture and metalwork specifically. Um, and that I would say has kind of defined our roles. It's, it's hard to say that exclusively just because, you know, we're a really small company and mm -hmm. every, every day we're wearing like a bunch of different hats. But yeah, like Toby, I would say leads the digital fabrication and like CNC work. The CNC is like really his, his baby. And uh, James uh, handles metalwork uh, when it comes in. We don't do a ton of it, but we, we do from time to time. Like we made a big staircase a couple years ago and occasionally we do some smaller scale metalwork, especially as like little additions to um, furniture that we're we're producing. Gotcha. Um, and then, yeah, my, my background's like woodworking and, and furniture making and stuff. So I, and did, I can't recall, did you ever have interest in the more fine art aspect of uh, making? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I still make art for myself and, you know, we, we often talk about um, just cause the lines are so blurry now um, yeah what do you what do you mean by you make art for yourself what would that mean in this instance yeah i i guess i i guess i would define it as as something that i wouldn't try and ascribe like a functional use to beyond it its existence as hmm. a thought piece yeah um but yeah beyond that like um James and, and Toby are, are producing like sculpture and, and art as well. And, and we've been talking a lot about not necessarily limiting, like, like when we're, when we're coming up with like a design language and like kind of aesthetic for a furniture series, we're also talking about ways to just have them be sculptural objects or like a wall hanging or things like that, where it doesn't necessarily have to fit into a neat little box. Um, right, right. Yeah. 
like would left to your own devices, you would still seek to have some functionality within your objects, I assume. Yeah, and I think that I've been trying to understand myself, like where, why I'm, I'm so excited by furniture and by design and by functional objects. And I think for me, I find myself the most creative and the most like imaginative when I'm operating inside of a box, like when I'm, when I'm operating in confines. Um, sure, sure. If I'm like given a certain criteria for, for what something needs to do, then I can think about all the ways I can like bend and break those rules. And when I'm just looking out into this like empty void of possibilities where there's just like endless avenues for me to walk down, sometimes I find that to be like really limiting and yeah, like, like constrictive. Sure. I also think there's something just human about providing function to other humans. It feels good. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It feels, it's hard to describe how good it feels when you, at least from my perspective, when I was used to just making books, comic books and weird drawings. Of course, you can argue there's some function, but I won't go that far um, to making things like that. But I mean, literal function is, is um, I think, deeply underrated in the arts. Um, I don't know. There's some weird snobbish luxury to, th to thinking to thinking that I think in a sense that there's something lowly about providing function or just building an object that could be rested upon or sat upon. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Like adding utility to an object somehow like degrades its value as an art object. I think that has been like the status quo understanding of really of like craft of design and it, it's so, so interesting, too, because, like, you know, in the world of art and design and um, industrial design, all of that, a chair can be so many things, right? Like, it can be a sculpture, it can be functional, it can be totally non-functional and just be, like, a lumpy, crazy, like, uh fragment of what once was a chair or whatever you know like people are people are really like pulling and pushing the idea of of what art and design can be in a way that's pretty interesting right now um, yeah so i feel like were we you remember we went to that wedding once yeah i remember did we, that did we get into a conversation about craft versus art and the, and the history that's of the word craft is that me and you yeah, it sounds like us. Can can you reiterate that? I forget the the details, but I remember being very interested. You must have been reading something about it. You you clearly had a wealth of knowledge on that. <laughs> well, I'll do what I can to remember. It Let's sounds go. like I was smarter a few years ago. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think really craft meaning like the kind of like traditional uh skills of, of making functional objects and, uh, you know, like operating in a, in a tradition of that's like rooted either culturally or geographically, um, to a, like a way of making, um, is kind of like how craft was, was understood. And 
up until recently and recently being the past like 50 years because you know in like the 70s there was like the craft furnish like studio movement and wendell yeah. castle and like all of those people you know started kind of changing this understanding but yeah i feel like you know we don't think of like basket weaving textile arts like all, all of those things are kind of just now entering like the art world as mainstream and respectable forms of, of art. Um, and yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with the people historically that were producing those things being, uh, you know, more often like women, um, people that were not allowed to enter into the upper echelons of academia and, and art and, uh, and it was also just more commonplace and part of everyone's kind of everyday lives in a way that arts, at least in this country, has never really allowed, been allowed to be. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, I follow. I mean, it also ties into the trades, mm -hmm. which, which is a different, there's a different reason I feel that that's not respected. But it is, it really is that utility thing. Um, which I think in some ways is fair, you know, I wouldn't call a plumber an artist, I don't think, although there's creative, <laughs> there's creative decisions absolutely made. And that's not to denigrate the act of plumbing. It's just, I don't feel the need to call everything an art that is done well. I actually yes. find that, I find that gesture strange. Um, because even fine art is not the the peak of human I don't know. I don't feel that that is a like a, I, at the very least it's debatable um, that the finest thing one can do is make fine art. Yeah. Although it's yeah, fun, I, you know, I don't know if you have the urge. It sounds like your expression always does manifest some kind of function. Again, that doesn't mean it's not art, but in the, in the stricter sense of the definition, I do think people think fine art is completely um, devoid of that kind of function. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I, I feel like that is getting more and more like contested because, you know, it, you see more often when you, you're going to like gallery shows and stuff, it being this mix of what would traditionally be considered fine art and what would traditionally be considered craft or design or whatever. Um, you know, we're, we're actually, we're showing a few pieces at, um, a group show that uh, friends of ours are, are putting on that are kind of joining. I think there's six or seven um, painters, photographers, etc. They're showing work, and then we have a few furniture pieces in the show, as well as uh, a couple of other people that we know. Mm. Um, but their whole concept is is making a gallery space that combines art and design objects in a more kind of natural way, like lived in way. Um, and it'll be like a show that uh, is actually at their uh, residence. So they're like setting up their home uh, as yeah, like yeah, an yeah. appointment gallery and stuff. And you can go like, you can do a virtual tour and then go in person and, and kind of, 
interact with the the work in a lived space instead of in this like pristine white box which i think is pretty interesting i'm excited to see it it hasn't opened yet but it reminds me of the um barnes museum in uh pennsylvania you ever hear that yeah yeah, so like, yeah. I mean, it's deeply controversial because it was, it was basically stolen by the city of Philadelphia and moved mm -hmm. and then became more of like a quasi-museum. It's basically a museum, yeah. but this is after this is long after his death. But his whole thing was almost strictly educational, but also it was in his house and everything interacted in a cohesive manner, uh, whether that was rugs, chairs, paintings by Picasso. Um, which seems so obvious, you know, it's like we live in a very atomized world where that sounds radical. Um, yeah, it's just like very normal. It's what anyone does in their house when they're thinking about it from like a serious <laughs> perspective, you yeah, know, having, sure. having these things click. And I feel like that, that kind of problem exists within us. I'm not talking about you and I, but, uh, when we're trying to, express the fullest of our spirit you know for me it took a while to understand that i needed some of this in my life in terms of fabrication and uh, more functional design to feel like a full human at the end of the day because <laughs> because they feel separate but they're I'm not they're not separate um if anything the thread is just me just me doing those things in yeah. a light in a lifetime this is enough of a thread i don't need to like have a predictable uh i don't know how to even describe it specialized easily summarized life in a way when it all goes away <laughs> yeah i understand that honestly i feel like uh if it if it takes a few paragraphs then you're doing a good job you know yeah well it's not it's not easy from a branding perspective it's kind of why i'm asking you some of these more um maybe obvious questions, but because uh, the, the fabrication company I run with my partner, it's probably four years old now, and we're maybe getting to a similar place that you're describing. Mm -hmm. um, but we're often sitting here as people who aren't, we didn't go to school for it. We didn't, you know, we don't know architects and we don't know the jargon. And we're trying to describe to just normal people what we do. Uh, but then also we're trying to describe it in a way that's concise for the internet at large. And it isn't always obvious how, how to, uh, I wouldn't say reduce, but distill what can often be an explosive practice when you have a CNC machine, because you could basically be starting a new business every week. And the, <laughs> and the temptation is there. I'm not, yeah. It's actually the danger. Uh, it's potential is really great. So all these little words, experiential design, design, build, fabrication, car, I'm just a carpenter. Like this, like they all evoke a very different thing. And I do find trying to brand whatever it is you and I do, if you and I do a similar thing, I'm not even sure we, I think we do in some ways, uh, yeah, it can be, no. can be very challenging for me at least I, because of the level of ignorance I have towards like the actual industry. I mean, I've been trying to understand it for a decade and I'm trying my best, but still not fully succeeding. You know, um, I feel like all of these little carve outs and like 
special terminologies. It's kind of just a way to focus in on on a different aspect of things. You know, like I, I feel like if you call yourself a fabrication shop, at least my understanding of what that means is that you your bread and butter is just making other people's visions reality. You know, like that's what you love, that's what you do. Baked into that is a lot of like engineering challenges and like troubleshooting and brainstorming ways to actually make the thing. If you're given like a napkin sketch of, you know, some crazy sculpture or whatever, your right. your joy, your your passion, the whole thing that you're doing comes from making that into a, a thing that can actually exist and stand on its own and, and be interacted with. Right. Um, I feel like, yeah. And, and if you call yourself just a furniture designer, I feel like the implication of that means that you're not touching the material. You're not actually involved in the manufacturing of your stuff. And I've always been attracted to both of them. And I, I feel like because of that, we struggle uh, in figuring <laughs> out how to describe what we yeah, do, yeah. what we're interested yeah. in doing. Um, yeah, then no, I think that's, that's true. I think if I was only able to do one of those two things, I would be upset about it. Um, that said, the market and the industry, I would say, isn't really as accommodating to someone who's offering both on a like boutique scale, you know? Yeah. I mean, look, there's 8 billion people and it's hard enough to know what they're all doing if they're doing one thing, but mm -hmm. if they're all doing eight different things, it's yeah. just like, it's just a simple heuristic for understanding what the hell's going on and people don't like risk. So if they know you're a carpenter, who's literally just been making the same chair for 50 years, they're like, Oh, there's no, so no real risk there. I know what this guy can do. So there's that interesting thing of trust, I find, where, you know, I, I have a similar experience. Like when I have worked with some architects, it's it was a little initially shocking to me how, uh, what would you say, how zoomed out they were and how like they actually didn't address things that were really simple and mundane that I eventually did have to address. And I actually thought that was part of their job. And then I later learned like, oh no, it's not. Like they're really just zoomed out and thinking in these like platonic realms about what the thing should be. Yeah. And then and then when the, the boots hit the ground, like there's all the annoying shit, all the reality. So you're like, you're just marrying the ideal to the real in the best way you can do it. And, but there's something definitely lost you know, for instance, I can design a, a furniture and a an AI and an Adobe Illustrator and hand it off to my partner Matthew and not recognize how annoying it is to put together. But then, if I have to put that together, I'll immediately recognize, oh, I should have designed that completely differently here and here. And you you just have a holistic understanding that results in a better process for everyone involved. Um, beyond that, I've just seen contractors and architects getting they definitely like don't gel often, at least the way we often use them. Uh, there's like this weird blue collar, white collar dynamic. Um, mm -hmm. That's very funny to me. Yeah. All that yeah, to say, I, I agree. I think it's, it's a superior approach to be holistic, but also it's less efficient. 
and thus it has uh, issues at larger scales. And there is something to be said for understanding how to delegate and trust individuals who are different than you, as opposed to trying to just be the entire thing yourself. Because although that's incredibly satisfying for the soul, I think it is severely limiting for the team, uh, et cetera. Does that make sense? No, it, it definitely does. And honestly, that's something that we are still figuring out and hopefully doing better at, but yes, trying to do everything, uh, will guarantee failure. I would say like not, not being able to, to delegate and find the people that know what they're doing in the aspects of things that you should admittedly, you know, take a step back from because it's not in your wheelhouse. I think yeah. is something that's like a really important lesson, especially when you're just starting out, you have very little in the way of like capital to get things moving and stuff. And you're trying to save money everywhere. Right. And if the you real, make a mistake yeah. in this realm, this is not Photoshop. You can't exactly, control Z yeah. this shit. Like if this thing warps or this thing is the wrong dimension and you're on a job site three hours away, there's like, there's this incredible uh, pressure that's always existed, I guess, but that the the computer kind of uh, mitigated where like any mistake at any part in the process could potentially ruin the whole job. And, and also natural occurrences could ruin things or just weirdly shaped floors and ceilings. And un of course, un everything is uneven. Something you don't mm -hmm. even something I personally didn't even think about that much until building for spaces is like, wow, all this shit is uneven. Of course, because someone yeah. just some dude just made it. I mean, that's why it's uneven. I find all that very humbling and beautiful. Uh, yeah. Also frustrating and, and horrifying and, and stressful. But yeah. when you get lost in that, di like, because I also work on the computer. Again, if I make a mistake in Illustrator, it can be rectified in half a second. Uh, and if you're in that place too long, you you do start to develop weird personality quirks and expectations, in my opinion. I think it's actually yeah. unhealthy. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it is wrong how easily perfection can be achieved in like a 3D modeling program. And it's honestly, yeah, I, I would say like to the detriment of designers who don't have the experience that you're describing, like so many people that I worked for in the past um, would frustrate me, not because they were incompetent or not good at what they did, but because they were never taught how to design from the understanding of how to make. And yeah. so like, like you were saying earlier, like if your business, if you design something, your business partner put it together and you looked at it and were like, oh, that looks great. You would never know about all of the mistakes that your design had made that made his life hell to exactly. get there. You know, like it, it's that, that education I think is like pretty essential for really for anybody who's, who's trying to design physical objects and stuff like having yeah, that yeah, hands on yeah. experience is really important i think for me I, i'm like maybe extreme in this sense but i'd rather someone be like labius woods who never has a building built and they just yeah. dream 
they're like pure dreamer. They draw yeah. these strange landscapes, and maybe in a hundred years, someone figures out how to build something like it. Um, or a person who's like really understands how to build something. And mm-hmm. again, what we're talking about is like it's just a boutique version of what trades people have been doing since the beginning, which is like it's more obscene that there are individuals who only think about how to build something and that's their job uh, or mm-hmm. vice versa. In the past, you had an integrated life just by virtue of uh, probably how technology was, but you basically had to know how to take it from start to finish. And and there was no other option, to my knowledge. Like, that was just... I suppose I'm, I'm arguing against kind of like an assembly line yeah. Uh, future yeah. of modernity. Not yeah, against I it, mean, per se. just doesn't make my soul sing, you might think, to be a part of a, that kind of cog-like structure. I agree. I agree. Yeah, I, I feel really blessed that I'm able to get that kind of more technically complex, like creative work and... Uh, ability for like self-expression and um you know like uh just a more like creative outlet while at the same time getting the spiritual reward of like actually making the physical thing that puts smiles on people's faces and like you know they're eating breakfast around it the next morning like that does feel really good and it's, yeah, yeah, there's yeah. there's something just like really simple and honest about it that feels good, especially given how confusing living in society currently is. You know, it's just- how ungrounded it is, yeah. Yeah, it's just like being able to satisfy somebody's like basic needs for like shelter and comfort, and then also feel like personally rewarded from the way it looks. I I, I don't know, It's, it's something that is really like intoxicating. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's about the grounded aspect where like a cup is so. I don't know. I think there's certain cultures that just get this. I could be like romanticizing Japanese culture, but to me, it sounds, it looks like they design everything with focus and understanding and a kind of holistic sense of what the thingness is, like the, what the cup is and what the cup serves. In, in and of itself, and each thing kind of has this respect towards it. At least that's how I encounter their design, whether that's advertising, posters, signage, furniture, etc. And there's something in American culture that I don't know, maybe it's just like that, uh, it's like efficiency to get things cheaper, but there's like a disposability that promotes that ungrounded feeling. I mean, if you can throw out something and three years or if you have to because it won't work for more than five years whatever like that doesn't ground you but if you have a chair for a hundred years of course that's going to ground you in your home and and even from like a familial perspective if you if it is passed down like i don't think people understand how i don't know how powerful that is yeah no i would agree with you i mean Really, it's it's just been a total uh, disconnection from our understanding of the built environment around us. Like, I feel like 
50, 60 years ago. This book, I don't know if you've ever read Shop Class's Soulcraft. I'm yeah, I don't know if artist. you, I don't know, that's Matthew B. Crawford. I don't know if you told okay, me yeah. to read it. It maybe was you. Uh, oh. But that, that book effectively changed my life in the sense of, I think oftentimes you're being pulled along a path and then you need like an obvious artifact to tell you that you're on that path, like a book that says what you haven't been able to articulate. And Matthew B. Crawford 100% validated for me the shift uh, that occurred when I started to focus on functional objects and and fabrication. So if yeah. that was you, thank you. If it wasn't, <laughs> it's, it's all good if it wasn't. But I feel like I mean, I'll take the credit. I don't remember, but... <laughs> I think it was. I think I think I'm gonna give it to you. Oh no, no, it's my other my other good friend Tim Lyons, who was interviewed on here. But you would you would be you would be great friends. He's a great dude. Matthew B. Crawford, super important. But go ahead, go go say what you think about Matthew. Well, I mean, there's there's lots of great moments of that book that I can talk about. But one of the ones that I found like the most interesting was the difference in. Um, like owner's manuals and brochures for products and how that has changed. Like mm -hmm. uh, in the fifties and sixties, like back when people, you know, back when shop class was funded in this country and, and people, all, all people had some kind of technical knowledge and understanding for how to maintain, refurbish and restore the things that made their lives function. Um, and, in that era when people were shopping, they weren't just looking at the like superficial advertising promos. They would actually be flipping through like exploded AXO schematics of like right. how these things functioned. And the selling points for the products would be like talking about how much like solid steel components were like precisely machined in such and such component for the thing. Like there is just a level of like technical knowledge and understanding that your average American had that no longer is even close to the case. And granted, a, a lot of that also has to do with the fact that everything runs off of computer chips and that really abstracts our understanding of like just intuitive functionality of products and stuff. But it was just really interesting to me, you know, it's like. Yeah, yeah, it's like a collaboration. It speaks to a society that was um, in some way collaborating. Like, I'm here's the thing, I respect that you might actually understand it. If it breaks, this is how you fix it. I'm not yeah. just like creating an opaque black box. Uh, like, I think Matthew B. Crawford in, speaks about this in Why We Drive, if that's the name of his latest book. Yeah, it is. Um, about like the danger of where uh, automobiles are heading and it's mm -hmm. mostly about uh, uh what would you say like automated driving but also the fact like when you lift the hood on certain newer vehicles like there's nothing any normal human could even figure out in terms of like how to fix something um, and intentionally so that's yeah that's yeah, honestly exactly. yeah it's like a selling point now for for products to look futuristic and otherworldly basically as as successfully as you can like obfuscate how something actually functions 
the more like mystical and impressive it is hmm. to like your average consumer now. And I just feel like that is a crazy way to understand the things that you use on a day-to-day basis that like make your life work. Yeah, I mean it's trite, but it's kind of like a Wally situation. That's just a very concise yeah. movie, Wally. But yeah, um it's good. It's good. Yeah, it's funny for you to call it uh, mystifying. It's an interesting way to think about it. It it seems like overly uh, complimentary to what's happening in this situation because I I view it as kind of dystopian and uh I think I know you're saying you're on the same page. But um yeah, I mean I look back at the men in my like my grandfathers and I, to me they seem exceptional but I'm I mean they may have been in some ways but I also think they were just the dudes of that generation who could build things like my grandfather built houses his whole life with no real training he just like taught himself and that's the house I grew up in and my other grandfather uh could fix like he fixed like tiny watches for people I mean, watches are, you know, they're tiny, but just like looking at his, <laughs> looking at his tools are just, it's like insane uh, how precise and tiny the gears are. And I don't know, it's just, um, they, I mean, a lot can be said about the kind of weird panopticon we live in, in a, in a lot of different ways and the, and the kind of black box quality to a lot of objects Um it's almost partially why I kind of enjoy IKEA objects because I'm like, there's a, it's a real interesting design challenge to be like, here's a thing you think is cool and 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 good looking and functional, and you're gonna go home and put it together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if your grandfather's house was. Do you know if it was a Sears catalog home? No, the house I don't, that he built. I, I don't think so. He built. I mean, this man built like hundreds of houses. So I don't. Okay. And he has like he has like a very particular style, which is it's interesting. Like I lived. I never even thought about this, but I've lived inside of his mind essentially. My parents still <laughs> live in that house. I lived on a street he built, and then was later taken by the state because I think it's the process. Like you could like pave a street and put build it out, et cetera, and then like after a certain amount of years, it would eventually go to the state. Um, oh, and that's wow. like 20 minutes from here. It's named after my, his first granddaughter. So my, my cousin and, um, yeah, it's, I don't know if that's, I mean, that sounds pretty exceptional, but my point being just like, even nowadays when a dude seems to know what he's doing as a handyman, it's usually like some weird fetish of getting wild ass tools that are just like <laughs> crazy. And, and yeah. uh, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, you know, and there's something to be said for having the right tool. Like, I definitely learned in the past four years that, like, oh, like, it's very important to have the right tool to know how to use it, you know. Um, but I do find that most people when, yeah, you know what I'm talking about? There's, like, kind of this weird, um, it's just it's just consumerism, I suppose. It's just another wacky-ass tool yeah. to, to own. Yeah, well, I don't know if... Uh you are like bombarded with the same amount of uh, targeted tool advertising as I am (laughs) just because of the shit that we do. Um, But yeah, that, I mean, we could do a whole other interview just about how insane the advertising around tools is just in general, because (laughs) 
Yeah. It, it's what do you mean crazy. by what do you yeah, which aspect do you think is uh, particularly insane? Well, I think yeah, I think the target demo for like tool promotional videos is uh if you like uh flame decals, screaming yeah. guitar solos, just getting showered in sparks for no apparent <laughs> yeah. reason, you know? Oh, it's yeah, it's dude. just like somehow like the poison era of like hair metal is still yeah, yeah, like sick. reigning supreme amongst like tool marketers in a way that is pretty interesting <laughs> to me. Yeah, you know it's funny. I never thought about this, but like there that the aesthetics of that versus like a guy like my grandparents and their tools. There wasn't like no. I don't know if you could even call it the advertising to have aesthetics. It just seemed like it was like this is the tool. And it's in a catalog, and this is what it does. But it didn't imply some kind of lifestyle. Exactly. That yeah. is the part of it that I, I find the most uh, reprehensible currently. You know, it's like, it is crazy to me that, like, I don't know. I, and it's also just, like, chintzy bullshit more often than not it's like this just molded plastic that's going to come apart on you and to do like a specific one singular task that like if you actually knew what you were doing you would be able to do really easily using basic instruments you know yeah 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 like like just weird measurement things for like i don't know i don't need to get into like minutia but but yeah it's just uh it's yeah, it's it's like selling machismo in this way that's like really upsetting to see sometimes, and also really funny too. Oh yeah, well I suppose when what they they strip whoever they may be, when everything has been stripped from you, be it even life itself, they have to sell it back to you. So that's why I think they have to sell lifestyle back to you because people yeah. don't even the people don't even they don't even have that. Uh, I'm not trying to be like overly pessimistic i just think it's kind of true that um there's some subtle robbery at play and it's like when i talk about community people are like talking about building community it's like yeah in the past people just had communities they didn't yeah. it wasn't a conscious effort and in my struggle to build communities and succeeding and failing at times like i had that realization like uh, oh this was like an organically emerging thing um, and now I'm like putting it on anyway, that's a, that's actually, this leads to a different question. Like what scale would you want for your company ultimately? I think, and we've, you know, we've talked about this. Um, I think there's a certain point where if you're, you know, successful enough or in demand enough that people are, are wanting so many of your products that you're not able to keep up with it without scaling into a giant factory and just becoming like a production warehouse. Yeah. You have to make a choice where you're either scaling back your in-house production and focusing on just doing prototypes and custom work and then partnering with a larger fabrication shop. And that's also kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier. It's like, then you're, you are looking for somebody that has scaled up and really focused in on the fabrication aspect of 
this type yeah. of work, you know, where, yeah. And there, there are like a number of really famous companies that do this for like very big name designers and artists and stuff like De La Spada in Portugal, um, Mixma in Mexico or the two that just jumped to mind, but, but yeah, partnering with a company that really loves the just production work of, of like realizing someone else's vision and then focusing in yourself on just making new iterations, new ideas and realizing those physically, you know, like you're still tied to the work you're still building the things, but maybe you're only building one, two, three of those things before you have a fully realized concept that you can give to somebody else and they can run with it at scale. Um, so are you implying that you would prefer a smaller company that then delegates appropriately? Yeah. Like I, I never want to be in charge of like 50 people. I never want like a massive production space and especially being based in like New York city. It, it's just, it, balloons on you so fast, like the overhead and the risk and like all that crazy stuff. Cause like, you know, we're a company of like five people currently. Um, and it's still crazy just to keep the lights on and like do this type of really like floor space intensive work in a place where the price uh, per square foot is as much as it is, you know? Um, I think the do you, do you have a, a do you have a number that because I think about this a lot. My my one brother has a company that's probably over a hundred. I don't know fifty people, and you know, there's like interns. He doesn't even know who they are. Like logically, he can't keep with the, up, up with all this. But like, there's like this. Uh, I I would I'll call it an Amish moment where you have to decide like. You know what I'm saying? In, in, in the sense, like, we're going to stick with horses here. We're not going to move on to these <laughs> super efficient machines. But do you think, like, 15 people would be too much? I think that is, like, the absolute upper limit of what I can really conceive of. And, you know, if we talk again in a couple of years, maybe my whole tune has changed. But in terms of, like, how I kind of see us progressing, I would much rather have us stay small and really, really grounded in the creative work and less so in the production aspect of things. Um, That said, you know, I don't think the creative work will be as good if we are completely removing that physical production work from our day-to-day lives. Like, I, I think that is essential to our process, but I don't necessarily think rote repetition is beneficial and if that's where we get to at least with certain designs that are more successful or like if the price point is lower so you know any number of things um then yeah i think it's in our best interest to give that to a company that just wants to cook and and just crank things out in a way that we would prefer to stay to stay at a scale that we can't do that as efficiently, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's really about picking your battles wisely in respect to where you want your humanity to shine. And it's, um, yeah, 
It is not and simple. I, I will also say that there's like, there's ethics and politics involved in that decision and stuff too. You know, it's like, we're not going to be bargain hunting for the most exploitative factory pra practices around the world. Like I'm, I'm not mm -hmm. going to try and have a bid for the lowest, uh, amount of human dignity given to the workers at a, at a place. If we were going to partner with them, I would need to know like very intimately how they operate, what their, you know, what their structure is and, and really trust pretty, you know, pretty confidently that everybody was benefiting from the collaboration, you know, like I, I wouldn't, right. I wouldn't want to, and I know of other, like, you know, it, it is tempting. And I know of other like design companies that their, their model is really like doing prototyping and iterations and stuff, and then finding who can make the most for the least and then cranking them out as cheaply as possible, you know? And it's, I mean, yeah. hell they're, they're going to do better than us, but uh, yeah, that's not really where, my head's out with well i think i i once read a book on this about it was basically just like you will not win any efficiency model um war in america like you if you're building an object that's pretty simple or can be replicated in in china or elsewhere you're eventually just going to lose and thus the only thing you could succeed in is an, a brand that's based on innovation and the way he distinguished that concept, which is very useful, is you have a brand predicated on innovation when the consumer cares about where it came from. Whereas with an yeah. efficiency model, you know, you can get some doohickey from China for like two dollars. And if it serves that function and the, the consumer likes it and it doesn't they don't care where it came from. And so I think for us, that's really what and that's that's a blessing, right? But his He's also saying the trade-off there is you can rarely sell companies predicated on innovation to other people down the line because the soul is it's entangled with the very thing itself. Whereas if you build an efficiency model, you can essentially sell that assembly line to someone who wants to buy it in five years or you could sell it off. You could have like a chain or something. And so there's the rub is like if you want any soul in this game – there's of course a sacrifice and and that would be like yeah you you can't be as efficient and you you have more skin in the game like if you walk away the whole structure collapses it's not some machine running off into the wild you know yeah yeah and it's no. scary but it's the truth it's just it's just the cold hard truth of the the approach you know yeah definitely so i yeah. feel you on that like that's I mean, we've all seen it, right? With things we love or companies we think are high quality, like probably the soul, the individual who really loved it, uh, they moved on for whatever reason, either physically or they found different interests and they coast on those years where they have that efficiency model built and they're making money and and then it just slowly goes downhill as other people control it that don't understand the very nature of what it was special in the first place. So. They're kind of just cashing out, and and hopefully, if they are, they're putting that money they made off it into something better. But that might be a little too optimistic. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'm talking about this stuff like theoretically because we've discussed yeah. it, you know, like internally. It's like, how, how do we grow this? How do we get to next levels and, and stuff? And I do, you know, it, I'm interested to see how it feels and what we're able to find in terms of a theoretical like partner for production work like that, you know, like, cause I, I know of a, a good amount of shops that are like kind of the right size for us to partner with that are, you know, all based in the U S and seemingly do good thoughtful work and, you know, provide good, uh, pay and benefits and all of that stuff to their workforce and et cetera. But yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. Like even theoretically just giving up a, a certain level of control on not only just on quality, but like on just how the things you're bringing into the world enter it, you know? Yeah. I mean, part of the shift for me was I would make books and, be very meticulous with the details and send it off to a publisher and they would make mistakes and it would drive me crazy. And yeah. And that was at a more neurotic period. I've definitely learned to trust people more and also to be able to communicate because I probably was worse at communicating then, but, and by that, I mean, communicating to like the most precise detail possible without micromanaging someone just being like really aware yeah. of the potential risks of things, but while respecting their autonomy. And and then I realized, so like I went from that control freak moment of, shit, I need to be able to design and build the thing exactly how I want it so I, nothing can go wrong, to like, oh wait, this is impossible. Like I need to trust and learn how to communicate and accept my mistakes and other people's mistakes while producing the best thing humanly possible um, and I say that because it's not going to be this perfect object mm -hmm. and just like being realistic about delegating. But obviously like there's, there's a, it's a delicate balance. Like we're talking about, cause if it scales up like crazy, uh, I just think the further it is, it's literally away from you physically speaking, the, it's so hard to care about the thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's true of people too. It's like a long distance relationship with the objects you're building. In my opinion, it's just not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> that's just that's just tough. It's tough. Yeah. No, I honestly, I, I agree. I feel like it's just like natural human nature. You know, the, the more we can offload from our conscious brain, the less we are forced to care about it. And the more it becomes just like an accepted fact of how things are, you know? So. Yeah. I mean, I always talk about how, like, when my car breaks down, we develop intimacy. When he works, <laughs> there's nothing there. It's just a, it's just a means to an end. But then when, yeah, when it breaks down, there's all, all of a sudden there's this great connection between us. Yeah. Because you're caring for each other, you know? Well, and it's, I don't know, for each other, but yeah, there's a, <laughs> there's a recognition of what's being provided in a tangible way in that moment. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I see it. Well, so, are you reading a book right now? Uh, I'm reading a no. book right now, yeah. but it has absolutely nothing to do with what we've been talking about. Yeah, but what is it, though? 
Chain Gang All Stars. All right. Have you heard of it? No, no, no. Chain Gang All Stars. Chain Gang All Stars. And I'm going to attempt to say the author's name, but I'm probably going to fuck it up. So please. Oh, I see. That's not going to be easy. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya, I believe. Pretty good, um, man. But anyways, uh, the book is really cool. It's like uh, set in the not-too-distant post-apocalyptic future where uh, uh, American media is like fixated on this new blood sport that uh, <laughs> like promises prisoners uh, with life sentences freedom if they survive three years on what's called the circuit, which is like a pretty classic like gladiator fight-to-the-death circuit of blood sport um but yeah it it's a really cool book and it uh i feel like the way that they write about like action it's really exciting and stuff and then it also obviously has a lot of like abolitionist and kind of political overtones i'm i'm right at the part of the book that starts getting more into the into the revolutionary side of things that sounds yeah, fascinating it's, it's cool has nothing to do with woodworking, you know? No, Pretty but it's, it's nice. Would you recommend it? I would recommend, yeah. There you go. It's good. Well, it's a pleasure talking to you. I got to go eat. I think Always we sufficiently introduced people to you and the idea of fabricating. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I hope I wasn't uh You weren't, whatever it is. No. <laughs> Uh, no, it's been it's been great catching up, and uh, I would love to to come out and say hey to you guys and see what you're up to. For sure, I would love that. All right, man. Well, I'll let you go eat. Music by Dory Bavarsky and Mingjit Chen. Next up, we have Jim, Jamie, James, Bradshaw. Until then. <laughs> <laughs>